0: Second thing, we have now um, completed nearly, not quite a year-long or the uh, year-long process of um, shifting affiliations of denominations from our previous one to um, the Churches of Christ in Christian Union in Ohio. Uh, they've been here and visited us, and they will, now that the transfer is done, um, they will, representatives, their superintendent, um, uh, several others, will be here next Sunday for both services to um, present to Dan Canoost and I, um, or me, I guess it's me, isn't it, whoever's in English. Um, our certificates of transfer of ordination. We're not being ordained. We already are, but we're, this is a, cert, a certificate of ordination from the new denomination recognizing our previous ordination. And then presentation of a, the initial step towards ordination, which is a license to preach um, to Tanner. And so um, we I know... Telling you that you've got seven days of excitement to wait um, for that to happen, but at any rate, I want to invite all of you to make sure you're here next Sunday, um, <clears throat> the twentieth. Third thing, and um, most of this I I'm addressing to people who are a good number of people who are watching, either live streaming. Um, our services, or um, you know, on online later. Um, this is the first Sunday that we're going back to two services, and um, let me state why we're doing that. First of all, we're not uh, mostly we're not doing it because we were completely crowded out in the uh, one service. Um, though it was getting what we felt was possibly uncomfortable for those who um, want a distance a bit, and uh, so hopefully by going to going back to two services, we're primarily doing that so that those of you who are uncomfortable being in very close quarters. Um, we'll have some more room to spread out. So those of you that are watching online and are not um, compromised with underlying health issues, um, we hope to see the good number of people that watch online drop <laughs> um, so we can kind of get back to normal. Um, and and I'm, I talked to several people even this morning i'm not i don't like the idea of quote a new normal i liked it the way it was okay um i'm really sick of all this so um the sooner we can get back to some semblance of normalcy the better which includes um donuts (laughs) um our fellowship time between services has been the number one thing that I have um, been approached as people missed. And so, um, anyway, that's the, fi- that's the final announcement I want to make about that. And last, that's all I'll say at this point. So, um, now, let's turn our attention to, <clears throat> we've been looking for sev- several Sundays at the m- huge doctrine that permeates every page of Scripture, permeates our lives whether we know it or not, is the doctrine of grace, the grace of God. And the grace of God fills fills the earth, influences every single human being whether we as human beings know it or not. The world through the fall is fallen. It is darkened. It is wicked. Human hearts, according to the prophet Jeremiah, are deceitful beyond all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? none of us can plumb the depths of what the human heart is capable of doing and really in addition to scripture telling us repeatedly the darkness of the human heart without god we have corroborating evidence just look up the news on your phone or whatever and you'll see corroborating evidence I just um, the news. The news makes me so depressed, but I have to watch it because I um, the desire not to be depressed. Um, the desire to, to halfway know what's going on slightly trumps my desire not to be depressed. Okay, so I know I shouldn't, but I I, I watch it. <clears throat> The news this morning there were two two policemen um, doesn't sound like they will live ambushed sitting in a car in their patrol vehicle in LA protesters came and blocked the entrance to the emergency hot room where they took them um, fought with police by blocking the road and the entrance to the emergency and chanted, we hope you die. Now, I know that there are massive amounts of people that wouldn't do that. But there shouldn't be anybody that would even consider doing that. If you want some examples of how black the human heart can get when we push back against the enlightening grace of God, there you have it. The very fact that the vast majority of people who don't know God would say, Man, you, you, that, that's bad. Where did they get that sense of right and wrong? From grace. God's grace enlightens every John said it, that Jesus is the light that enlightens every person who comes into the world the grace of God then unknown to almost everybody (laughs) who doesn't know God still deeply impacts and influences us toward the right it is God's great I think a term we could use the grace of God is a homing device that God arbitrarily through no cooperation of our own. He sovereignly puts within our hearts a somewhat dim, and we can dim it, but a somewhat dim beacon calling me back to Him. And that's where, that is where people groups who've had no discernible contact with any outside civilization have a remarkable sense of right and wrong it may be somewhat primitive it wouldn't be as finely tuned as those who have the scripture but nevertheless there is a a sense a moralness about us that's grace and god's grace enlightens us and then empowers us to respond to that spiritual light so that if if we learn nothing else from spending some Sundays looking at grace the thing that just keeps coming back to me is how absolutely blameless God is no one will be able to stand a judgment day without Christ in their hearts and grace in their hearts and blame god for that lack he has done so much to pave the way to draw us to enlighten us that anyone anyone who has not responded to that help will have no one but themselves to blame we've looked at what um theologically is called prevenient grace, preventing grace, or the grace that goes before. It's the grace of God that prepares the way for a lost, blind, darkened soul to ever find God. There's, those are called unconditional benefits of the atonement. Jesus' death on the cross purchased for us God striking out after us to try to bring us back. And all that he does is completely on his initiative. No one seeks God. No one seeks God of their own initiative. God is the one who awakens me, calls me, begins to dawn on me the light of right and wrong, and draws me continually if I'll respond to him. So we've looked at prevenient grace, and we looked at the the elements of that, which are the gospel call, and then awakening, and then the grace. It doesn't sound like grace. It doesn't sound uh, pleasant. But the grace of conviction, which is God conveying to me a very clear knowledge of the gap between my behavior and His requirements, the huge gap between God's heart and our heart and a deepening, hopefully a deepening sense of conviction heaviness, shame, guilt regret for how I am in comparison to God. That conviction then produces, if we will cooperate with it It'll produce repentance. And repentance is, again, not something that you and I initiate, but God numbers of places in Scripture speaks in this term, this way, that He grants repentance to us. He enables me to repent. I can't repent, turn from my sins, unless He prepares my heart and brings me to that point. I can never initiate any of these things, but I can stifle them. That's the thing we have to remember. Grace must be cooperated with. It can be resisted. And the result can be that I go out into a godless eternity with a black heart hardened against God. Let me, let me say this to you, and this also has become plainer to me, um, looking at all that the Bible teaches us about grace. It is harder, much harder, much harder. It is much harder to get to hell than it is to heaven. We talk a lot about and rightly so, the spiritual warfare and the battle that we're walking upstream against a godless world, and I don't know what in the world that is. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Yes, as Christians, we walk upstream. We walk against the current. We are warned everywhere in the Bible that we will be opposed by this world and by a superhuman, supernatural foe. All of that is true. But I've got God to hold my hand, to go before me, to pave the way, to protect me who promises you'll never be exposed to anything beyond your ability to resist it with my help. So I have, yes, I have a warfare to keep me out of heaven, but I've got God to go with me. On the other hand, I have to fend off God (laughs) to end up in hell. I have to resist God who stalks my path and knows my thoughts before I think them, knows my words before I say them, knows my actions before I commit them and He pleads with us, hedges up our way, puts hurdles in the front of us to prevent us from going against His will. I have to climb over everything that God himself, maker of heaven and earth, does to try to draw me to the skies. It's harder to go to hell. You've got to work harder at it. You've got to go up against more power. But that reminds us that God will not, having made us, having made us with the power of choice, he will, under no circumstances, ever violate it. He can do his best to thwart it, influence it, but he will not ever force me to love him and obey him. He doesn't do that. He just doesn't do it. He will do everything he can to influence, influence us, but I have the I always retain the power to resist it. And say, no. C.S. Lewis put it better than anybody. Finally, Judgment Day boils down to this. We will either say voluntarily to God, your will be done. Or God will say to us finally when we stand before Him, if we're without Him in our hearts, He will finally say, your will be done. This is what you wanted. I fought against your inclinations, but you wouldn't listen. Jesus also, weeping, sobbing, is what the word is, over Jerusalem. He said, how often I would have. In other words, this was my will. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks But you wouldn't. And He'll never compel us. So if we stand before God without God at Judgment Day, it is 1,000% our fault. No one could ever charge God not being fair. He enables us, if we'll cooperate, to repent and then there's the grace of faith. He enables us to believe. And that produces what I want to look at today. And that is justification. That's a big term. It's a big subject. That's what I want to look at today. There might be a little bit of down in the weeds, but we need, we need to know we need to know theology. We need to know what the Bible teaches and what it doesn't teach. We need to be clear on some things that I think we might pass over. So, couple just a couple of representative scriptures. First is in Romans, the third chapter, which is, of course, the letter from Paul that is the closest thing we have to a systematic <coughs> theology. And the aim, Romans, is to show both Jew and Gentile that works, good works, good things that we do do not justify us in the presence and the sight of God. This is the, listen, God's the greatest competition, the greatest um, other religion, if you want to call it, to justification by faith is justification by works. That's God's biggest competing, if you want to call it, contrary teaching. I hear it all the time. Well, people start, I don't do this, and I don't do that. At least I'm not as bad as that. I'd never do this. And I really have been you know, I've messed up a few times, but I'm, I'm a good person. I mean, I, I, I help you. I give to stuff. I give my money. I volunteer for things. And what are we doing? We're pleading that our deeds will justify us in the sight of God. And really, told a person not too long ago who brought that up to me. I said, here's what it sounds like you're talking about what a wonderful person you really are. But the truth of the matter is, here's what, when we say that, well, I've done good. I, you know, I, I, think, I think I'll be okay. I might, I'm pretty sure I'll go to heaven. I'm essentially saying, I don't need Jesus. Now, God apparently thought we did. He thought sin was such a mess that he had to sacrifice his own son to provide us forgiveness and redemption and escape from the penalty of sin, which is hell. He thought it was pretty serious. And so for me to say, no, thank you. I don't need that. I'm above that. I don't need to grovel before Jesus because of my sin. I've done enough good. It'll outbalance the bad. Listen, that's about as wicked as you can get. I don't know how you can get more arrogant and more haughty. I I don't need the blood of Jesus who hung on a cross for my soul. I don't need that. I give to Boy Scouts. I shovel the snow off the old lady's driveway next door. I'm a good person. Romans 3 we have to kind of jump in here. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus second passage is in Paul's letter to Titus short little pastoral letter the third chapter speaking of what to preach and what to teach 3 1 remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified, here's that phrase again, having been justified by grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, justification When we trust in Christ upon repenting and believing, the instant of faith reaching out in confidence toward God, trusting His revelation in the Scripture, and believing that through Jesus there's forgiveness of sins and cancellation of the penalty of sin, when we reach out by faith, Instantly, we are justified. Now, justification is both a, an act, as it were, of its own, but it also is used in Scripture as a blanket term for everything that happens to us and for us when we believe and are, here's some terms, we're either saved, or we'll say is converted, or we'll say born again, those are some of the terms again blanket terms that cover what god does for us and in us when we believe that's also grace and here's what it is justification this is a term to describe the specific act of remitting remission of sins the word remission means to take away That God takes away our sins once we have repented and trusted in Him to do that very thing. There is the remission of sins, and then there is a declaration of God to me personally, called the witness of the Spirit, that declares me right in the sight of God, that He puts me right in his sight this is again why my I can't make myself right God has to upon turning from that which is the object of his wrath and anger which is sin then he justifies me he puts me right in his sight there's a way then in which and and here's where we could get a little bit of weeds but I'll do my best here plus you're not stupid God does something for us and in us when he justifies us first for us there is in a sense justification is a change in the mind of God in his attitude towards me he is I read I think it was last week psalm psalm 7 God is angry with the wicked every day if he the wicked will not turn which is repent It says God will sharpen his sword and draw his bow and set his arrow. That's how somehow we've got to get a handle on. That's what lies before us if we don't turn. There's the old sermon that everybody read at least when went to seminary. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's, it's no wonder people, people cried, wept so loudly in that congregation that two or three times he had to quiet the crowd. They were weeping so loudly at the horrors of hell that he was hanging them over. And it wasn't Jonathan Edwards, it was God. That's the sermon from which we get the phrase, walking over hell on rotten boards. It's a bit different from what he said, but it's the concept. That concept that, that hell yawns before me and the only thing that keeps me from there if I'm not right with God is that my heart keeps beating. And God has control of that. So God's filled with love for me, wanting to save me. But if I refuse to turn from His great object of wrath, which is sin, then I drop into an unchangeable eternity. When I repent, call on God to forgive me, and turn from my sins, he changes His attitude towards me. That's one of the parts of the definition of justification. God no longer looks at me as a rebel in, within His kingdom, a, a, a slave who's ro- uh, risen up against Him. He no longer looks at me like that. He now looks at me in a completely different way. He justifies me. You're okay in my sight. And I, it can get a little bit um, too elastic to use this term, but he, he looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. That's the drastic change that is involved in justification on the part of God. So there's a change in God's mind and attitude towards me. Second, There's also a change in my own heart. Titus mentions being washed by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That is technically called regeneration or the new birth. He brings me to life whereas before I'm dead in trespasses and sins. Justification not only changes God's attitude towards me, but He changes my heart so that I am now alive. I'm His child. I am born of God. Now, I could say more, but I need to keep going. I'm now accepted by God. But there's some things that we're usually not aware of But theologically and biblically, we begin to notice as we read through Scripture a number of things that the Bible tells us happens when we trust Him, when we repent and believe Him. And there's, it varies a bit. There's uh, whatever the list is, five, possibly even six things. And they happen, let's put it this way. For all intents and purposes, they happen simultaneously, but they don't. There is a logical sequence to them. Okay? First, there is forgiveness or remission of sins. All the sins I've committed against God are blotted out. He forgives them, and He removes them, And as the word remission here means, he takes them away, removes them. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That, what a blessing that is. Blessed, Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins have been taken away. I am no longer charged with them. My record has been blotted clean. The guilt and the shame have been lifted. The skies are blue over my head. I can look God in the face without shame. The kind of shame Adam and Eve exhibited when hearing God's voice, they ran and hid in the brush and covered themselves with fig leaves. That is the automatic response of a heart that's not one with God. That is lifted. And that is forgiveness. Second, and here's where the logical sense but it all floods our heart at once and is done we may not recognize it. Pardon. God is a judge. Our whole judicial system used to be based on Scripture. And God functions as the judge in a moral court. Offenses have been revealed. Offenses have been committed. They've been revealed. But the offender has repented. The offender has has confessed them and the offender has cast himself on the mercy of the judge and the judge has previously promised that if you will acknowledge confess and turn from it i'll pardon you i'll forgive you first then he forgives us on the heels of that he pardons me what does that mean the penalty is put away and what is the penalty for sin it's hell And in the meantime, let me put it this way. Currently the penalty is separation from God and anger from God. Hell is really nothing but separation from God that I experience now made permanent. Never to be reversed. God pardons me. It's like you know the old black and white movies where the the phone rings on the wall next to old Sparky <clears throat> they're about ready to pull the switch and the phone rings and it's the governor and you know don't go through with it we've pardoned him God pardons me The punishment is canceled because that which prompted the punishment, my rebellion, has ceased. So He pardons me. Third, regeneration. Regeneration is the new birth. God makes me alive. New life and light comes into my heart. And suddenly, my eyes are open and my life is restored the regeneration implies a time in my life when i did enjoy a state of innocence that's why and i'm not really not getting off into the brush hopefully that's why last sunday was it i think yeah it was last sunday last sunday we we baptized jackson howell why do we do that it doesn't make him it doesn't carry him in at that moment to the kingdom of god he's already in the kingdom of god because he's an innocent child and covered by the atonement paul said before i knew about the law he said i was alive what's he talking about he's talking about the before the age of accountability as an infant he was alive an infant dies they go to heaven they're covered by the atonement that's why we in the ritual say they are therefore worthy subjects of christian baptism the baptism being a symbol that they are members of the household of god doesn't make them members they already are and we're acknowledging it okay but then paul said as an example of all humans he said when the law did come in other words knowledge of right and wrong and God's will for me he said sin sprang to life in my heart and I died what does that mean it means that the spontaneous inclination of fallen human heart once Mentally and morally, I understand God's will. Something in here rises up. I reject it. And like Isaiah, like sheep, we've gone aside unto our own way. And in that moment, I die. So it makes sense that God says, I'll regenerate you. I'll bring you back to spiritual life. I'll bring you back to the state of innocence before me that you once enjoyed, even though you weren't conscious of it. Does that make sense? Okay. The fourth thing this is weedier than any initial sanctification. Now, Titus says we are saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. There's regeneration and renewing. Okay? Now, this is what I'll quit with, and I hope again uh, I can make this clear. There are several kinds, I've mentioned this before, of sin. There's sin, the acts for which I'm personally responsible. There's the inherited inclination to sinning that all of us are born with. That's called inherited depravity or corruption or pollution. It's inherited. We got it from Adam. We all look like our moral and spiritual father, Adam. Okay? The Bible's full of that. But in addition to that spontaneous inclination to self-will and rebellion against the boundaries. Go back in the nursery, and I've said that before. It's the best illustration we have of inherited depravity. It's back there, okay? I know they're all cute and, and so forth. But the truth of the matter is, the human heart is bent toward rebellion. Don't tell me what to do. Even before we can reason that, But there's a second kind of corruption, pollution, depravity. There's inherited that we have, we're born with. But we add to that once we get past the age of accountability and begin to willfully, knowingly disobey God's law. Two things happen whenever any of us disobey God. Number one, we incur guilt, but number two, we pollute our heart. Adam and Eve did two things with one deed. They fell from God's favor and became guilty in His sight, but they also polluted their own hearts. Sin always then does two things. It makes me guilty, but it also corrupts my heart further so that and that is called acquired depravity not inherited so we have two kinds of pollution one is the initial bent that's inherited but the longer i disobey god and rebel against him and walk in my own way i build up acquired depravity. That's the pollution resulting from my acts. Okay? Therefore, someone who is let's say they're 40 and they have bucked God for 40 years or whenever they reach the age of accountability from then on they've gone against God. They are more corrupt and depraved in their heart and more inclined to sin than somebody who's 20. 20. Or than they were when they were twenty. I strengthen the bent to sinning that I was that I was born with by my own deeds of sinning. Since though that corruption resulting from my deeds, not Adam's, mine, God not only forgives my sins but the fruit of those sins, which is the added, acquired depravity of my heart. He cleanses away acquired depravity, but inherited depravity remains. And that's what plagues believers somewhat down the road when they begin to discover that they are double-minded. Now, that acquired depravity, the pollution of my heart as a result of my life of sinning is washed away and that's called initial sanctification. Now, that explains why Paul prayed for the Thessalonians who were the best church he had Highly complimentary of them. And he said their faith flourished and their love and so forth. They were clearly, he said, you've been born again. But he prayed for them. He said, I pray that the God of peace himself would sanctify you entirely. Why use the word entirely Because they are incompletely or partially cleansed, sanctified, regarding the fruits of their own deeds, the acquired depravity. But inherited depravity, which we as a fallen race are born with, was not cleansed at the new birth when you got saved. It remains for a second infilling of the Holy Spirit in which inherited depravity is removed. That's why he said sanctify them through and through completely entirely. They were initially sanctified but there is a need of a second touch from God that is not related to the results of their own sinning but it is related to the fallenness of the entire human race. It's Adam's image. It's exactly what we sing, and this is why I always sing. and <laughs> says at Christmas time, when we sing, hark the herald angels sing, I've, you, you will sing. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. That is the inherited likeness to Adam that is removed when we are entirely sanctified. Now, I've got to quit with the fifth thing. The witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit, another great gift of grace is that God conveys to my heart. The work is done. You are forgiven. You're one of my children. And it's that deep inward impression on my soul that leaves me with no doubts. I know. I know. I'm reconciled to God. The clouds are gone from over my head. There's peace in my heart. There's joy in my heart. There's, the shame is gone. And I can now look up into and the scripture's full of this too, I can now look up into the face of my Father and cry out, Abba, Father, which is the term of endearment to my Father. The witness of the Spirit telling me all of this, how much ever I might sense it, But telling me, you're pardoned, you're forgiven, you're looked at differently now by God, and all of the old wickedness that you polluted your own heart with is washed away, and you're a new person. All of that is part of the grace of justification. We're justified by His grace. Wonderful, wonderful truth that we are each It's open to each of us to experience it personally. Have you? That's the question. Let's bow our heads. We'll just close with prayer rather than having um, singing together. So Dan, if you will dismiss us with the benediction.